will experience life with a new vitality and a new awareness, a new freshness by maintaining our detachment. And that is a foretaste of this episode of the Planetary Makeover Show. In response to the heartfelt voices of an awakening humanity, we have evidence that divine help is at hand to work with us to create a hopeful future. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Planetary Makeover. Today, we're going to tackle the concept of isms. Isms. What are isms? Isms are philosophical, political, social, or religious ways of being, and all are really based on the root-ism of mine and yours. Necessary to humanity, but only as ladders to freedom. Some examples, patriotism, democracy, capitalism, idealism, ageism, religion, communism, totalitarianism, commercialism. So it's not about eliminating our dearly held isms. It is about becoming aware of them so that we can detach from them. And how we are using the power of self-realization to help us come to terms with them and move beyond them. And to assist us in this journey is our guest today, Mike Nolly, who has been studying this because he's a longtime student of the Aegis Wisdom teaching. In addition, he's a musician, a jazz pianist, and as an artist myself, I can tell you my take on it is that music is the highest art form. So he's an artist, not unlike Benjamin Krem, we got a lot of this information from, who Mike will mention a little bit later. Welcome, Mike, to the show. Thanks so much, David. Please tell us, um, Mike, when you first found out about this information and how it helped transform your life. I know you and many other people have found out how to do this from the magazine Share International. Share International was started in around uh, the early 1980s by Benjamin Krem, who is, um, as many of us know, a Scottish artist and esotericist. And uh, his background was in Western esotericism, which is the basic belief that all the world's traditions are founded upon a core set of truths which are identical um, and based on the wisdom of the universe, you might say, the the inner structure of, of reality. Um, and so they take the approach that all of the world's traditions are referring to these core set of truths in through through the screen of metaphor or analogy, um, and that if you trace those analogies back to their core meanings, they're identical in nature, while at the same time diverse in in, in expression and cultural similar things like that. Um, and so Mr. Krem's uh, approach to this subject was that of uh, of universalist. Uh, not a sectarian approach or one that's coming from a particular background. So share, share's uh, information is that Maitreya 
is a teacher for all people and all traditions, not simply one tradition or one culture. And that um, his approach to the public will be characterized by an emphasis on the practical necessities uh, that, that human beings need, need for food, clothing, shelter, basic education, and basic health care. These are essential from Maitreya's point of view, because without those in place for the majority of humanity, you won't make any further progress. Um, so that's the basic information. And, and what's exciting about this book that we're going to be dis- discussing today, uh, Maitreya's Teachings, The Laws of Life, is that it represents Maitreya's um, direct teachings to the public through a group of Hindu swamis. Uh, so these are his direct words. And, and we get a sense of, um, of his approach in a new way that we haven't had before. And we even get kind of a sense of his energy, the energy of awareness. This is perhaps the first time in history where we have the teacher with us presently in real time. In the past, Buddha, Krishna, Jesus, Muhammad, and others, the writings we have about them were written after they had gone. And this time, the teacher is still here. So it's interesting. Maitreya echoes this. He says, I myself have come. I cannot be caught in any isms. And I have not come to create followers. What is important is yourself, free from compulsion, able to fulfill your duty without a sense of burden, not bothered by praise or criticism. The moment you feel divinity within you, you realize everything is within you. The master key is within you. And I think what's interesting about this book is that Maitreya um, is giving us his teachings in advance of his um, ready acceptance by the public. And I think this is intentional. Um, we know from the, the presentation of Maitreya's teachings uh, from Sharon International that Maitreya is doing this emergence before the public in stages. And each stage is characterized by a certain approach. And, and that way, the, the public gets to know his approach slowly and gradually. And that's, um, that's really important, as, as I understand it from the story of Maitreya and his emergence, because they don't want to infringe upon humanity's free will. And I, for example, and yourself, we don't have any authority in this regard, so people are free to accept or reject what we say. And so this information and the divinity that Maitreya and yourself are expressing and explaining is both transcendent and imminent. So as we know from Sharon National's presentation elsewhere, Maitreya has to make his approach to the public carefully and quietly at first, and that's because he can't infringe human free will. Um, He's such a a teacher of such colossal stature that if he were to uh, appear as an an ordinary, uh, a garden variety teacher, his his message would be quickly lost um, because of the effect that it would have on people and go in their various directions. And also because he, uh, the masters of wisdom are not able to repeat themselves. Um, He has to have a group of people to, to, uh, in a sense, work with his teachings and allow it to change them first and then work through them to a certain extent. Um, And uh, so one of the things he says reflects this. He says, to start with, I come with you like a thief in the night so that you will not become too excited. 
Slowly, as you become aware, you can digest what is eaten. In awareness, you will know me. In isms, you will fight against me. Now, uh, I know you had um, mentioned also um, to me in our preparation for this show how thoughts and feelings are viewed in the West, that we can't seem to grasp the notion that thoughts and feelings are part of a material process, whereas in the East, um, they see them as one. Right. What's important about my presentation is that it is before a group of Hindu Swamis, and so their background is in Hindu philosophy. Um, and in particular, in Hindu philosophy, there's a, a different understanding of the self than in, in the West, although similar in many ways. Um, and it's interesting that Maitreya actually takes an approach which is closer to a universal approach, closer to the Western notion of the self. But in Hinduism, the self is, is a, uh, an abstraction, uh, a universal observing uh, spirit, you might say, and they call it Purusha or spirit which is completely without any qualifying aspects to it when it's in its own being. Um, but when it overlaps with matter, it creates the appearance of forms and activities. Um, and those forms and activities then have the tendency to give us the impression that we are the actor, when in fact it's the forms which are in the process of, of changing as a result of the impact of awareness. Um, and uh, that's, that's one aspect of Hindu philosophy called Samkhya. Hmm. And uh, that originated about you know 2,500 years ago. Um, and then the second aspect called Vedanta, also yoga, um, has an, a number of different uh, related concepts like the principle of the Lord or Isvara and also the notion of karma and dharma. Uh, so it's a, a somewhat more conventional approach, but in the end, they end up blending together in, uh, in a sort of syncretic way. And that's what we, the approach that we see in this book is uh, a syncretic approach, which uh, affirms the reality of both the self as an eternal observing aspect of the universe, uh, the Lord, which is the the, uh, the divine principle, which is responsible for the universe, and also the idea of dharma uh, or duty, uh, understood as one's duty to to live in the world with a strong sense of detachment. So it's a synthesis of the East and the West, Eastern and Western thought. And it looks as though the West has a lot to learn from the East. And the other impression I'm getting is, so the self that we talk about, the true identity of the person, that which stands behind, you know, the mental, emotional, and physical aspects of us, is free. Right. Uh, Maitreya is a wonderful way of putting this. He says, if you surround yourself with the luxuries of life, you have a situation where the senses become possessive and life becomes struggle, confusion, chaos. The moment you experience the Lord within, you tend to become free of all these attachments in life. Simplicity is not a burden for mind, spirit, and body. These are the temples of the Lord, and he must be free of possessiveness. The necessities, however, will be there. These are automatic processes which express the natural course of inner evolution. The trend towards greater simplicity will also be observable among many rich people around the world who will surrender the excess and share with the people. If you are serving me, I am everywhere. Let's go into that question of what is honesty of mind, 
sincerity of spirit, and detachment. So honesty of mind, sincerity and spirit, and detachment are the three main principles which Maitreya encourages us to follow in order to have a more authentic life. Um, been discussed before in this program, evidently. Uh, honesty of mind is, in reality, the principle that needs to govern us when we're living in the present moment. Without a certain degree of honesty, we look at the world in an illusory way, full of our projections of what we think. Uh, this is the, the Western tendency and also the tendency throughout the world to uh, name and classify that which we experience in terms of our, our memory, to uh, uh, prejudge every aspect of our lives according to our, our existing formulation, according to our prejudice, and according to our, our lives to ourselves. When we're honest, we have the tendency to look at life as it actually is, as it actually appears before us in all of its glory or horror or usually neither of those things. Um, and that gives us a more a more sane approach because then we can act more truly as well. Um, sincerity of purpose is related to honesty of mind. In, in many ways, they, they appear to be the same thing, but they refer to different phases of this process. Sincerity of purpose is the, uh, the a trueness that one has to one's inner life principle, the heart, the principle of love within the heart or awareness. And by remaining true to that, you are, are established in, in an unconditioned core, which is your true self, um, the spirit principle that I discussed earlier, uh, or Purusha. That principle, from Maitreya's point of view, is not, uh, you don't project anything onto it. You don't uh, determine its qualities or characteristics. It's simply pure awareness. And that's why he says that, that when you are in awareness, you're one with me, because Maitreya represents the love principle, the unconditioned awareness principle. So by, by remaining true to ourselves through sincerity of purpose, um, by be, beca- becoming aware of the heart, maintaining awareness of the heart, we maintain awareness of God uh, in a pure sense without having to rely upon um, a, a religious structure or a particular, a t- a particular formulation of what God is. Although it really does require also discipline still. And that is the best explanation I've heard of honesty of mind, sincerity of spirit, and detachment in a long time. And I understand Uh, you may have had another quote from Maitreya that helps um, elucidate this further. He says, um, and just to continue with the last part of it, and from Maitreya's point of view, detachment is the most important of those three principles. Detachment is the ability to to regard all forms as as passing in nature and uh, not troubling to, to one's inner self. Uh, detachment allows one to proceed through life while maintaining awareness of that unconditioned reality. In other words, not to be swayed by praise or blame, pleasure or pain, or any of the characteristics that our form nature uh, ha- has in evidence that our form nature displays. Uh, and that includes both the, the physical form and also the mental formations that are created when we are in the process of thinking. So by remaining detached from that process, we can see it as the observer rather than being invested in it as the 
one who has come up with the belief or the one who is the body, one who is the emotions or feelings. When you regard those aspects of your nature as an observer, they no longer trouble you because they are simply passing forms. They're not you. Um, and that highlights a, a difference between Maitreya's perspective, also the, uh, the perspective of Hindu philosophy and the Western perspective. The, and we, dis- we discuss, did discuss that earlier. The, uh, the Eastern and, and mystical perspective is that the, the self is universal and deeply connected to God and not uh, the integral self is understood in the West. Um, me with my memory, me with my possessions, me with all of the the detritus that I built up over the process of my life. Um, and so th- there's a, a quote that elucidates this pretty well. Uh, Maitre says, you've been given mind, spirit, and body to express my being and becoming in thought, speech, and action. Therefore, be honest in mind, which is the natural food of the mind. Be sincere in your spirit, the natural food of the spirit, and feed your body, your physical body with the right food. Anyone who deprives you of these things will fall into destruction. The moment you personify the spiritual force in you, a process of destruction begins. You will experience corruptive forces around you. This is not a prediction, rather a universal law. The mind is not to be personified. The spirit is not to be personified. If you set a goal, achieve it, but it cannot then dissolve it, your development is arrested. What you are able to personify, you should be able to dissolve. So the example here also lays out what it means to be truly detached and what the reverse is, what the process of attachment creates. Um, Mm -hmm. Personifying something, we are, it's kind of a a curious phrase. It means to identify some force as an aspect of the self, confusing that which is spirit with that which is matter. So um, the what happens at the, in that event is that then the self, instead of being connected to the Lord, it becomes surrounded by the forces which it's observing and identifying as the self. And then those forces end up corrupting uh, the sense, the, the self sense of itself <laughs> um, and uh, removing its sense of detachment. And we, we all have experience of this in everyday, in everyday life. I think what's, Kind of shocking about this teaching is that we can identify in our lives so much that represent pockets of imprisonment, as my trade puts it, uh, areas where self isn't active, the self is, is being entrapped or imprisoned by some aspect of form life. And uh, we can get much closer to the goal if we stay true to the Lord in the heart at all times through, since the, through, through that process of detachment. And it sounds like we could make a parallel since uh, Maitreya had mentioned staying healthy uh, between keeping the the vehicle healthy and increased interest in um, this in the past century and in the 21st century in <clears throat> nutrition, meditation, yoga, exercise, and so on, integrating all the bodies. Right. Um, that's something that lays beyond the scope of this book in the main, but what, what's really fascinating about the present time is that you have a mass of people, I would say, in the hundreds of millions who are becoming aware in a new way of what it means to have self-respect, um, which Mike Trey calls the seed of awareness, and are starting to become aware of themselves as, as individuals in, 
in in such a way that they're they're shaking off some of the forms and practices of prior ages and traditions. They're they're shucking ideology and and uh, attachment to political party or to religious ideology, and becoming aware of awareness itself as a factor in their lives. And the principal stage in this process is, uh, in most cases, the changing of diet to reflect a more healthy approach, the changing of um, physical behavior, so that developing the body into a finer instrument, and the practice of meditation. All of these presage a a tremendous change in, in human civilization, because once those those people who are starting to become aware of awareness become aware of what it means to apply awareness in everyday life through uh, through sincerity, spirit, honesty, and mind of detachment, and also through the sharing of world resources, which will be characteristic of this group. Then you'll see a completely changed civilization, a civilization characterized by justice rather than by injustice as it is now. So, Mike, this is very illuminating, and it brings together so many different factors in the world, so many different concepts and changes that we're all going through. And what it brought to mind particularly, which I'd like to touch upon just briefly, and then we can continue our discussion of the laws of life, was um, the three great experiments that Benjamin Krem had touched upon in his books, uh, because you had mentioned um, politics as well. The Russian experiment, which is a loose aggregate of states, uh, the Soviet Union had broken up, so now it's sort of a federation. The American experiment, which is sort of a melting pot, a phrase that we've all heard for probably a couple of centuries now. And the British experiment, where the British Empire obviously broke up long ago, but there's still this sort of loose congregation again like the Russian, something like the Russian experiment only in this case it's the commonwealth of nations they're all working together but they're all maintaining their separate identity right this is fascinating in that um, human beings have, have a way of structuring our lives in such a way that things are self-similar so we have the, the uh, the construction of the family, which is based upon uh, trust and upon sharing. Then you have larger groupings like the city um, but or the city-state and then the nation or then groups of nations. The difficulty with us right now is that those larger forms are relatively historically new. Uh, the the city-state itself is only a few thousand years old um, and nations haven't really existed in a major sense for uh, more than about 500 years. Um, And then the notion of groups of nations or blocks of nations, that's also, again, a a relatively new concept, really only as stable as the Second World War, so 75 years now. Hmm. Um, So we have to deal with the the perils of having new forms in existence that are uh, trying to express new, uh, new energies. And that, that produces its own peril because uh, because of the newness of the of the ideas, there's instability, and also deep attachment to um, to the ideology which is responsible for their creation. So, in the sense of the Russian Federation, it's based on the ideal of um, 
communism in certain respects, but also the the from their point of view, long history, but relatively historically short history of uh, of the Russian uh, Federation, and then the United States has formed NATO around the concept of American exceptionalism, which is relatively historically new, but is 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 deeply important to the United States for its international self-image since the Second World War. And those those two things in relation create a tremendous conflict because they're very, uh, they're not nuanced ideas and they're not also uh, very nuanced forms. They're still in the process of demonstrating themselves in terms of their might and and presence. uh, They haven't developed yet uh, a sense of of integrated balance and and respect for for other, other groupings. Uh, That will have to come, and it must come if there's going to be world peace. So returning to the whole issue of isms, how do we approach these? Everything from communism, which you mentioned, to spiritualism that we've developed over thousands of years. And how do we begin to view these more objectively? So yeah, I think it's important to note that um, Maitreya here is encouraging us to be free from isms, but not necessarily to destroy them or become opposed to them as an evil force. Um, isms are uh, simply the the rungs on the ladder to that, that we can use as tools to achieve self-realization. They're intended to be um, to be utilitarian rather than ends in themselves. Um, and there's a quote here from the book, which really illustrates this quite well. I believe these are the words of uh, uh, Maitreya's associate. Isms, ideologies, and beliefs are essential stages in the life of every human being. They represent the second nature of our lives. Evolution can only take place through them, and it is in fact controlled by them. We should not tell people to abandon their beliefs and philosophies or trust and faith in them. Human beings are motivated by isms, such as love, faith, trust, and patriotism. It is important for survival and second nature in the world in which they live. The spark inside them has one day to be free from that nature and its illusion. Even if, through meditation or spiritual awareness, you feel momentarily free of the world of the mind, spirit, and body, you should not abandon it, but continue to respect and honor it. Every individual, every nation is ruled by their second nature. The laws of evolution governed by this nature surround the self, and it is up to the self to learn to master them with awareness. Awareness builds up a movement in life, which creates evolutionary progress. But awareness must not be confused with freedom, for that is the ultimate destiny of the journey through life. So, in other words, you have isms and conditioning and uh, the forces which are in in the process of becoming manifested in your life. Um, The only difficulty is in the attaching to those isms uh, in the slavish way that we tend to and the creation of conflict through that attachment. If we move through the process of identification with forms and then the reverse, the detachment from them, we live life in a more authentic way. Uh, to give an, a practical example, um, I don't know, you as an artist may have experienced this yourself. 
when uh, one is doing an artistic thing, whether it's playing music or painting a painting, uh, there's sometimes the, the feeling that there is not an individual self that's doing the work that in fact you're you're watching the artistic process but you're not the one who is actually composing it there is another force which is moving through you and creating the work uh this is a, a almost universal experience interestingly enough among artists uh and really shows the degree to which awareness has made its way into our lives in a major way um that experience is an experience of the self because you are becoming aware of a process that's working through you. Uh, Maitre says that healers can have that the same experience when they heal, but they attribute the healing to the Lord rather than taking it as something that they have done. Uh, and this is the right approach. This is the right approach to life in every respect. Um, if one maintains aware awareness of oneself as the observer rather than the participator in the events of one's life. Um, nevertheless, the participation aspect is equally important. And that's through the process of um, the, the respect that Maitreya is talking about, the respect for isms as, as uh, essentials for, for many human beings, uh, rungs on the ladder or, uh, or forms that one moves through without a sense of attachment. And yes, Matter of fact, I have experienced that before, Mike, as an artist. I, I paint something and, and I look at it afterwards and think, who did that? doesn't feel like I did it. And when you were uh, talking about operating at that level, I wanted to mention, too, that Benjamin Krem and Maitreya, too, I think, had mentioned relating to others on a soul level and not a personality level level personality being that well i like this one like this person i like hanging around with them oh, that person not so much and this is a great challenge to relate to people on a soul level and not a personality level right so the western esoteric concept concept of the personality um is very much similar to the concept of personalization that's being discussed here um Personality in this case is the is the form aspect, whether it is uh, the mind, spirit, or the body. These things are experienced as temples rather than as being uh, continuous, um, unchanging things. So this can be understood in a scientific way as well. Um, it's perhaps not obvious, but each each of our physical bodies is made up of atoms, which continue to cycle in and out of our bodies continuously throughout the pattern of our lives. So over a period of maybe two or three years, there's not one single atom really that has maintained its integrity. All of those have changed in the two or three in two or three years. So this physical body is not it is not the same physical body even though it maintains the appearance from one year to the next. This is also true of our feelings and our thoughts. None of those things we can say are really an integral self because they are in the process of constant change. Um, so they, they, they represent a second nature, uh, um, a temple which we experience with uh, a high degree of respect and reverence, but which we don't regard as the self. We don't regard that as being us. And that leads to a more balanced uh, perspective. 
uh, and for, for us, the 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 factor of personality and likes and dislikes uh, is another one of those changing factors because our likes and dislikes are constantly changing. Um, some of them may stay the same, but we can't regard our our likes and dislikes of people or situations as being foundational at all. Um, nor should we regard others others likes and dislikes as being foundational or affecting ourselves. They don't. They're 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 unreal in the same way that. Um, uh, you know, the body is, as I was saying, is unreal and the emotions are unreal. When someone is looking at you and judging you, they're not really looking at you. They're not really seeing you. They're seeing an image in their mind that they have of you. And the way you presented this material, too, in a detached and non-egotistical way reminds me, uh, again, of the 20th century Indian Hindu teacher, Jiddu Krishnamurti. And Krishnamurti was also said to be a disciple of Maitreya. And he had talked about how as the teacher, and in this case, you're the teacher, that he had to sit on a platform or stand so that the audience could see him. But he made the point that the platform didn't give him authority and that he was both the teacher and the taught, that he and the audience are on the same level. And that seems to me the way you presented this information as well. Yeah, Krishnamurti was one of those extraordinary individuals who, who changed forever in many ways how we look at spiritual teaching. I think prior to Krishnamurti, um, uh, a guru was something which was of, of preeminent importance in Hindu thought, someone who one followed in every respect and whose dictates the disciple regarded as absolute law. Um, after Krishnamurti, crack, cracks begin to show in that system because of the degree to which he completely disregarded it in every respect. He did not regard himself as a guru, in fact, saw that system as being uh, parasitic to the uh, the uh, unauthentic approach. In other words, if you if you give responsibility to your life to your guru, if you give him authority over you, you lose yourself entirely. And we can see in that Maitreya's input. You can see his energy becoming involved with this. And um, in that sense, uh, Krishnamurti is seen as as one of the foremost disciples of Maitreya, one who gave his teachings and introduced his approach in many ways to the public, even before Maitreya uh, had come down from the Himalayas and, and began his public work. Um, so there's a, a quote from the book that I want to share on the subject. It goes like this. All the changes taking place in the world are creating awareness in people who have decided that enough is enough. They have right to be free and to enjoy life. They no longer want to be conditioned by politics, religion, or commercialization. Life has to be balanced, and we have to be aware of the self in the heart. It has taken Maitreya to release this awareness into the world. No politician came forward to say, let the voice of the people be the basis of democracy. They all hid behind their ideology. They did not talk about harmony. 
The light, the Bible, the prayer for one and all from now on is the awareness that Maitre is in you and you are in him. His vibrant teachings are stirring the world now and the politicians are silent. Hmm. And this seems to, to speak to the whole notion of religious fundamentalism and extremism of all kind, where we believe a certain thing and everyone who disagrees with us, uh, we label as wrong. It blinds us so that we can only see our point of view. Right. Maitreya my, my says in this book that uh, religions have created pockets of imprisonment. Um, and identify that as not being a problem with religion specifically. I think that religion is perfectly useful for people to escape from other forms of conditioning. Uh, and if you look at it, you can kind of see the whole uh, structure of religious and philosophical thinking as a set of partial measures towards freedom um, and, and a conditioning thoughts that create the possibility for freedom to exist within the individual. So you, you can take Hindu philosophy, for example, or Greek philosophy, and you can see that each the tendency of each one of these, or, or the work of Jesus or Krishna or Buddha, you can see each one of these as, as building up in humanity slowly over centuries, this thought form of freedom from conditioning which then turns into awareness itself, awareness in itself, not the thought of awareness, not the theory of awareness, not the religion of awareness, but awareness itself. And then that supersedes the religions at some point, it becomes the dominant factor. Um, but this isn't something that will happen all at once. So you have groups of large groups of people that are working with awareness as immediate principle and don't need the religious concept, others that will stay with religion. And from Maitreya's point of view, all this is fine. Uh, it simply, it, it creates a, a conflict in or, or an error in development when um, attachment is used to hold on to that, to one perspective and say, my way is the right way, your, your way is the wrong way. You have to follow my way. So I was thinking about this. This the, There's a great analogy to this, which is two cords that have become tangled in each other. Like if, if you carried them in a bag as I did from, from the gig last night back home. And I made the mistake of trying to untangle it by taking one wire and pulling it out from the other. The problem is, is that this immediately actually creates more tangle than was there in the first place um, uh, because of the approach, because of the fact that you're only dealing with one of the wires and you're pulling it through the other one. Whereas if you, if you take the approach of relating the two and pulling them apart, uh, it, it creates a much it's a much simpler process and takes maybe a couple of minutes. Um, but that's the way in which religious individualism or fundamentalism is destructive because it, it, it can only work through one of the sides triumphing or one of the sides uh, achieving some kind of victory. It can't be achieved through uh, syncretism if it's a fundamental type of religious uh, uh, philosophy. It can't, can't work through blending or, or um, as my trace says, it can't work through division. By, compare, uh, by comparing and by uh, through a process of conversation or dialogue. Um, and that's its, its main fault and the reason why it will go away eventually. So this awareness that you outline for us, Mike, also seems to touch upon what we see as you demonstrated with the tangled cords. For instance, we look at a tree and then we have a painting of it and we think the image is the tree, or we see it on video or a photograph. 
But the image is not the thing. The painting, the photograph, the video is not the tree. And that goes along with what you had said about relying too much on, on memory. Just as when people have an image of you in their minds, the image is what they see, and they're not really looking at you. They're not really listening to you. So they haven't really got to know you. And uh, so th it's this whole idea of too much reliance on the memory, and I think you touched upon um, moving away from that. Not abandoning memory, but not leaning on it so strongly as we do now. Yeah, I think it's important to get a, a really foundational sense of what what the problem with memory is and how that can be applied in one's everyday life. Um, and, and and for this, I'm going to not so much be relying upon uh, my Treya's words here, but a, a kind of commonsensical understanding of what it might mean to live without memory. So we all have moments in our life, uh, in our life experience where we're walking down the street or we're taking a shower or we're doing something that doesn't require much in the way of uh, talking or thinking. It's at those moments that we have the possibility of silencing the mind entirely. And the way this is done is by allowing the sensory input or the, uh, or the experience to flow completely through without the mind introducing itself. So in other words, I, I see a series of, sensory inputs, but at no point do I introduce an idea about them into the process. I don't introduce the the name or the the or, or something that happened earlier in the day or something I've been thinking about. I just live in the moment. I live in the momentary awareness of what's happening without any thought whatsoever. And this is actually much easier to do than than it seems on the on the surface. It seems it simply requires a certain degree of detachment to say to oneself, I don't need to think about that now, and to just experience the experience for, for itself. And what one will experience with this is that one is happier, uh, happier with life and happier with the experience because it's been lived more immediately, more, and therefore more usefully, because you had a, a real life experience there, not a memory and not uh, something in partial measures, but something uh, immediately useful to you as as an experience of divinity. Uh, this is why I think why natural spaces are so important um, and also art, because when we experience a natural space, uh, there's something unexpected in every everything that we're looking at, something new to experience that we have no way of categorizing in particular terms, unless one, one is a naturalist, of course, or, or a botanist. Uh, and this is a perfect opportunity to just have the experience of the thing without having uh, a clear sense of of what <laughs> of what it, it with what it is uh, in the same sense that a baby looks at something with intense curiosity and joy without having something to uh, to ascribe to it or believe to it ascribe to it um, and then when you take that same sense of uh, detachment from uh, intellectual objects of perception into your uh, meditation, you become, you can become more effective in meditation because the mind will learn to be quieter. Um, and I speak of, of this as one who's a beginner in doing this himself and one who doesn't have a great deal of experience yet, but it's, it's uh, just starting. So this awareness that you've been outlining um, for us, Mike, has been called the, quote, 
mother of all creation, by Maitreya himself. And I think that quotation may be in the book. But how can we observe this awareness and how can we cultivate it? Yeah, I think it's it would be easy to think of this philosophy and this approach as being uh, impotent or being um, inactive. And, and indeed, there, there has been the, the accusation that some aspects of Eastern philosophy inculcate a kind of passivity and, and non-action because of the belief that uh, the Lord and, uh, and the self are, are eternally separate, or the, the form aspect and the self are, are completely separate and therefore don't need to interact through a process of action. Um, but this is not what Maitreya is saying. Uh, Maitreya is giving us something that is intended to be deeply applicable. And uh, there's a quote that I wanted to share on this, which just uh, indicates this. Um, he says, what is peace? In creation, peace means non-conditioning. What is war? War means conditioning. We can understand that when people try to impose ideologies, they ultimately undergo processes of self-defeat because the self is at war. The seeds of destruction lie in conditioning. The seeds of peace lie in non-conditioning. Be what you are so that you are free from conditioning, so that you can approach whatever comes before you with an open mind, so you do not fall into into destructive processes. And this awareness that you... um continue to unfold for us, uh, Mike, through these many explanations, I understand is found in the heart. And I think that's probably touched upon somewhere in the book, but I'm not certain, that it's the first part of creation, that it's a God-given gift and said to be expressed most fervently and truly and in an unadulterated fashion by children through their innocence and their trust and so that it's already at the basis of our lives. Yeah, that's a really interesting parallel. Um, You know, there's uh, some scientific backing for this as well in a couple of different respects. Um, It's known that the thymus gland, which is the one that's closest to the heart chakra, is most active during the time of youth. Um, and the, the function of it's not well understood by scientists, but from the, from the viewpoint of esotericism and also uh, these integral syncretic, syncretic philosophies, um, the heart is responsible for the, the growth of consciousness and the, uh, the blossoming of it from a state of, of passivity into activity. And this is what's happening with, with children. They're becoming awake and aware to life as it exists. And in that process, expand, the consciousness is expanding. You can see it happening. It happens so quickly in those first years so in a way that uh, um, parents are often unprepared for, uh, almost as if it's a, a miracle that's taking place before your eyes. And that's, that's really, in reality, what it is. It's the growth the fast growth of the body, but also the blossoming of consciousness. Uh, and the, the notion of, of the heart in esotericism is, is really a magnificent one because it, um, it, it takes a fundamentally different approach to consciousness than the typical one. It's seen that the, the heart is the source of 
the initial impression that there is a self which is thinking, not the brain consciousness with its memory and uh, and reactions, but the heart which creates the first impression when when one is wakes up in the morning and the last one upon falling asleep. Uh, not any particular thoughts, but the notion that there is a self. And this is so important for Maitreya because it's the self which he's intending to reinforce and to to uh, stimulate into, into a blossoming on a worldwide basis. So you might say that uh, the, the old adage in the New Testament that one must live as a child in order to, or experience life as a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven is true in this case. Human beings have to become on a massive scale awake and aware to this childlike innocence and to ask the questions which children ask on a mass level. Why is there starvation? Why is there poverty? Why do we live in a world in which human beings don't value each other and respect each other at all times? Why are we hurting each other? All of the fundamental questions which have to be answered now or there will be major problems. Um, and it's, it's not a, simple, a simplistic approach, uh, you know, a, a, a kindergarten approach. This is uh, the heart on, on a higher turn of the spiral, on a higher level. Um, which is which has the metal and the and the discipline in order to introduce uh, simplicity into into the world experiment. Simplicity in the way that we relate to each other, complete honesty, simplicity in the way that economic structures are are created so that people have sufficiency rather than too much or too little, and uh, also simplicity in religious approaches so that the Structures that are being created, uh, the styles of meditation or worship, do not impede the sense of innocence. They don't cloud it over. They don't introduce a sense that the self is less than or worse or um, has something to do uh, or to improve upon, but rather that the self is the source of all life and is, is always remains intact and free and, uh, and uh, perfect, even though it's going through the process of change and experiment. Mike, that was a magnificent way to wrap up this discussion. Um, very informative and beyond informative, enlightening. And I'm hoping in the future we can explore this further, since in some ways we've probably only scratched the surface. Mm-hmm. And I understand that you'd like to end, um, wrap up with a mantra. That's right. I wanted to share actually one last passage from Maitreya and then the mantra for the New Age, which he's given to the public of regularly reminding ourselves of our connection with God. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll end with this final passage and then the mantra. Maitreya says, be who you are. You are not knowledge. You are not wisdom. You, the self, and I, the self, are one. Whoever, whatever, wherever you are, tread the divine water of cleanliness, which is detachment. I have not come to teach you anything new. Be honest to yourself, sincere to yourself, and be detached. This method is so simple, so sweet. It is free from religions, ideologies, politics. It makes one experience who one is. Fulfill your role and yet be free. That was a wonderful addition. Thank you so much for adding that. So here's the prayer for the new age. It's a simple formulation uh, intended to be used daily. Um, and we find, I think, that the best way to do it is with the attention just above the uh, 
between the eyebrows. Um, my experience of this is that it's it's much like the theory of equilibrium that we talked about earlier. It's an experience of the balance between the self and the Lord and the relationship between the self and the Lord as experienced in uh, all of creation. And the eye, speak, the eye that is speaking during this mantra is the Lord, the, uh, the author of all creation to which the self has a relation of identity. Um, so it's not the individual self that's saying, I'm the creator of the universe. It's Isvara, the Lord, the, uh, the one who the self is, is one with, but not identical. I am the creator of the universe. I am the father and the mother of the universe. Everything comes from me. Everything shall return to me. Mind, spirit, and body are my temples for the self to realize in them my supreme being and becoming. Visit us on Facebook at hashtag Planetary Makeover. This show has been a production of planetarymakeover.org. At our website, we have a link to our bi-weekly live show at 5 p.m. Mondays Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time. At our website, we also have a link to our archives and a selection of our shows. For more background info, visit www.shareinternationalwest.org. That's shareinternational-west.org. For related books and DVDs and CDs by Benjamin Krem on the emergence of Maitreya, the world teacher, please go to share-ecart.com. That's share-ecart.com. We also invite you to watch another show that we really love entitled What in the World is Happening? And that show, which you don't want to miss, is produced by Share International Canada. And it airs every second and fourth Saturday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time. The link to check it out is Share dash international dot ca or visit the share international canada facebook page